Good morning, church. Grateful to be before you guys again. And um, I have slides today, right? Ooh. They're not impressive. I was just like, I want to be cohesive with Steve as we're going through Colossians. So I I thought this would be helpful. But um, I'm both grateful and thankful to be before you guys once again to open up uh, God's word together. It's a humbling experience for me. Um, as I just have these opportunities to come up and just to study together. That's what we're doing. And really, um, you guys get to listen to me preaching to myself. All right, that's what's happening here on, uh, on Sunday. And um, again, just humbled and, and grateful for, for this time to be with you all. And so, um, and I'll do my best to be on time today. So, I thought that would get more laughs. I didn't. <laughs> But uh, let's open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, I don't have time for the whole chapter, all right? So uh, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 15, and there's enough there (laughs) uh, that I think just encompasses uh, just the whole chapter and what Paul's point is and what he's getting at for us. And so... um, we're going to be talking about uh, walking and abounding in thanksgiving this morning. And so uh, we'll read it, and then we'll pray and jump right in. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, and in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come as your gathered bride to give you all the worship you deserve. And I thank you for this opportunity um, and for this body to worship you. And we ask you now, again, that you would make the book live to us, that you would show us you, that you would show us our Savior, and that the book would live to us. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. So, before we jump in, I just have some images I'd like to put before you guys that I think will help us wrap our minds around Colossians chapter 2 in this section. All right? I think they're just helpful. And so first, um, earlier this week, I was meeting with Eric Hagman, and we were just talking about life and some things that we were reading and listening to, and he pointed me to this book by Greg Kukul. 
Uh, we've, a lot of us have read his tactics book. This is a different book. It's called The Story of Reality. And in this series, uh, Kukul lays out the idea that Christianity is both the picture and fundamental truth of what reality actually is. And now here, here's the image that Kukul lays out that I, I think just really is helpful for us this morning. Imagine a puzzle. A puzzle that's not finished and a bit scattered, right? This is your puzzle. Not only is it unfinished, you are missing pieces. My son misses pieces all the time in his puzzles, but large chunks of your puzzle are missing. And not only are you missing puzzles, pieces from from your puzzle, other puzzle pieces are Mixed in there. You guys following me? The puzzle that I'm talking about is our Christian worldview. It's how we make sense of reality. The things that we know about God. The things that we have come to believe that are true. All right? But are missing. But we're missing some some pieces. Some fundamental pieces. And in fact, other pieces from different puzzles that have no business being inside our Christian worldview or there. This is in part, I think, of what Paul's getting at in Colossians, uh, is that Christians have a fractured Christian worldview, these Colossians do, and they bring in other puzzle pieces from other religions. This is the heresy called syncretism or aestheticism. You may say, I don't other puzzle pieces. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't have puzzle pieces inside my puzzle. I'm good. I would say really evaluate it though. Really put it to test. Do you elevate your certain political flavor to gospel truth? Do you take the words of people that you looked up to, celebrities or singers or whoever or politicians as absolute truth? This is how it is. Are you more apt to take the tenets of the social gospels of the day by replacing them with the true gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think if we take an honest look, we might be surprised. That's the first one. Secondly, here's another one. And it kind of gets at what Pastor Steve brought up last week. Imagine being at the Grand Canyon. And you look over to a person who is close by And you notice something, that they're uninterested with the spectacle that is before you both. Instead, they are playing on their phone, scrolling through the latest reels on Instagram or laughing at something on Facebook. What what I'm getting at here is boredom. Boredom with the extraordinary. Boredom with the work of God. Boredom with his grace that has saved us from eternal wrath. I think Paul is also battling, battling this in a sense because it comes with a type of synchronistic attitude is that what if Jesus isn't enough? What if I have to get to other pieces? What if he can't actually provide the things that I need? So you look elsewhere. You get distracted. You get bored. You got, you got to pick from other places. And then lastly, also something that Pastor Steve talked about. It's like we planned this, right? Walking. 
Walking, the simple act of walking seems so insignificant to us. Especially because we have cars and we have bikes and we have these things. We don't really think about it, but I have a nine-month-old right now. I mean, she refuses to stand. You pick her up and she's just like, her legs crunch up. She's like, I don't want to touch the floor. And both my kids, they, they really both refuse to stand. They're like, every morning, dad's like, this is a side note. I don't know if this is true for you. My son, he wakes up. He can open doors and stuff. He's laying in bed and he just yells for us. Like he could get up and open the door. We even have like a thing. We can talk to him through a, a mic. And he's like, no, come get me. I'm like, you're three. You can open the door. Go play. I've been up since 2.30 with your sister. He, does, he refuses to walk too. Anyway. <clears throat> I mean, when we're learning to walk or when we're teaching our kids to walk, things, it, it, it's, it's difficult. It's not as easy as it is. But when we start walking, we see that we just keep going and going. And and we grow. And my wife, you know, she upgraded her walking to running marathons, and I don't get that. But I joke, but it's a difficult thing. But it encapsulates also the Christian life. As Steve said last week, walking is all the early church knew. When we're learning to walk, and when we teach our kids to walk, like I said, we need to be encouraged and we need to encourage them and support them and pro- and protect them as they learn to take steps and take steps in our spiritual journey walking is the image for the believers growing faith and we are called to walk in Christ as we read in verse 6 here why so that we would abound in thanksgiving now here's the question before us how is it that we fight the syncretistic nature of our culture. The syncretic, syncretistic nature of our culture that also invades our personal puzzles. How do we beat back the boredom we experience in the mundane, but it's actually a wonderful grace of God? And how do, how do we walk in Christ as to abound in thanksgiving? What I think we see here are three things that will help us on this journey. And they're up here. Is that to walk and abound in thanksgiving, we must have intimacy with Christ. We must find him sufficient for all of our needs. And we must find our identity in him. Intimacy, sufficiency, and identity. So first, intimacy. Verses 6 to 7, we read here. To fight boredom and syncretism so that we can walk and abound in the Lord, we must deepen our intimacy with Christ. And the initial opening here in verse 6 reminds the Colossians and today's readers of their positional status. Their positional status as those who trust in Jesus as Lord. Paul does this to spur on their spiritual journey in Christ. And Paul is also pointing to the opening phrase of Christ's identity from the Christological hymn that we didn't really get to last week, but you find in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This reinforces Jesus' deity, his identity, and his distinction 
over and over and above any other teachings that the Colossians church may be tempted with, the false teachings. And now just as they trust in Christ and as, as their Lord, they're to walk in him. To walk in him means to be completely subject to him, to obey him and submit to his authority. The walk Paul describes in chapter 1, verse 10, is interesting. He uses it as a type of intercession for the believer. But here, he uses the same walk in chapter 2, found in verse 6, as an instruction. The natural question before us today, should we deepen our intimacy in Christ as to abound in thanksgiving? Paul describes it for us, and he does it masterfully by using four verbs. Three of them, uh, all of them are participles, but three of them are passive, and one of them is active. So first... Paul encourages the Colossians to be rooted in their faith, the passive participle, rooted. And in verse 7, Paul uses the metaphor rooted as we see, as we saw also from last week in uh, chapter 1, verse 10. It once again describes the positional status of us who know Jesus as God's people and our need to be firmly rooted and planted in him. When I read this, I can't help but think of the psalmist's words in Psalm chapter 1. And in Psalm 1, we read about this blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord, meditating on it both day and night. And this man, like the psalm says, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. And it prospers in all that it does. You see here, we are encouraged to mature in our walk with Christ by being nourished, by being nourished specifically by the source of life, Jesus. We're to be planted deep down into the word of God so that we would abide in Christ. It echoes the words of Christ to abide in me and I in you from John. Why? Because Christ in his word gives us both stability and it is him that keeps us on the straight and narrow. Through this, we will walk. We will abound in thanksgiving. We will beat back the temptations of boredom and syncretism. Friends, our faith must be in the soil of Jesus Christ and his word, not to be uprooted by the passing philosophies of the day. And there are plenty of false teachers we are not without them. I saw something this week where um, I think it was um, Stephen Lawson. He's a pastor, theologian. He says, what's really sad about the Western church is that oftentimes churches peddle in a soft gospel where both false teachers and unbelievers are not confronted with the reality of their sin and they're not, they're not being challenged by it. And so they can, they can be in an active church for years and never repent from it. I think that's true. Friends, like I said, we must be rooted in Christ and his word, 
not taken by the passing philosophies. We draw from the living waters of Christ, and it's through this process, as we learned a couple weeks ago, that knowing who Christ is in his fullness matters to how we live. And then secondly, we're to be built up. Built up, our intimacy with Christ fuels our growth in him. This is the idea of, this idea of built up is kind of like an architectural metaphor. It describes our personal and corporate spiritual progress. And, and we are encouraged to be rooted as a means that Christ would produce growth in us. But also we are encouraged to, build, to be built up as a means that Christ would sustain that growth. You guys know what I'm getting at? This is another passive verb. These things are happening to us. And the term built up is most likely an allusion to the people of God as his dwelling place. His dwelling place. And we take note of this. You're like, where could this come from? This comes from Ephesians chapter 2, that we are being formed together, growing together into a holy temple. And it also comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, that when we grow in intimacy with Christ and in community with his people, we, we as living stones are built into a spiritual house. Therefore, it makes sense that God wants us to grow deeper in our walks with him so that we would built, be built up together and draw close to him. It's the threefold growth of the Christian life. God's word, God's people, and the work of the spirit. This is what he's getting at. And then third, when the Colossians are rooted and built up, they are established in their faith. Establishing a faith being established here comes naturally from being rooted and built up because as believers, when we commit ourselves to the truth of God, we will be strengthened. We will persevere in faith. And these things will happen. I get this from the statement, just as you were taught here in verse uh, 6 to 7. You see, Paul is challenging them and us to grow deep roots in what we know and what they know of Christ in order to prevent them from being taken captive by the false teachings of the day, by these false teachers. And the false teachers that do not exalt Jesus, they actively diminish his deity. To be rooted and built up and established will further our intimacy with Christ. And then the last one is so interesting. The last one, as I stated earlier, the three passive ones are rooted, built up, and established. And then there's this active one. That we would abound in thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving. This highlights our response to God's redemptive work in us. And not just in us, but for us. As we grow in Jesus and stay focused on the gospel, grace outflows from God's goodness to us and toward, and toward us, and it should humble us and produce grateful hearts. Thanksgiving is the major theme of the, of the letter to the Colossians. Not just this sermon series. It appears seven times through this entire book, and it's meant to characterize our lives as Christians. Christians are to be a thankful bunch, a people who overflow with 
thanksgiving, so much so that it's contagious. And through that contagious reality and that testimony, others would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's goal and his exhortation found here in this verse, in verse 7, that it would outflow from us that every poor would exude the glorious praise of God, giving thanks for all that he's done through his son and evidence with acts of kindness to others. And all in humble submission to Christ as Lord. Why? Because we walk and abound in thanksgiving by deepening our intimacy with Jesus. Sufficiency. Additionally, as we seek to deepen our intimacy with Jesus, we begin to understand, sorry, there you go, you're taking notes. I'm not a, I'm not a slides guy, all right? I'm trying to be, I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to take feedback and grow. We seek to deepen our intimacy with Jesus we begin to understand our walking and abounding in thanksgiving requires us to find our total fulfillment in his sufficiency. His sufficiency is probably the biggest thing we have a problem with. Stuff kills us here in the United States. We are so easily bored and distracted, but we are such a first world nation that we have everything at our fingertips. Literally, not figuratively. Everything. Sufficiency. You see, the Colossians were being fed false teachings about the person and work of Jesus. These, teaching were, these teachings were deceptive and they were destructive, which undermined the foundational truth that our faith is built on, which is this, Christ Jesus as Lord. They were being taught and tempted to pursue prescribed religious practices and adopting false ideologies that distort and diminish Jesus in his work, which would leave them empty. And it would leave them derailed within their faith altogether, tossed aside without hope, like true hopelessness. As I stated earlier with the puzzle imagery, we are enticed today in our culture with so-called persuasive philosophies and worldly values that ultimately seek to destroy the person and work of Jesus, and they creep their ugly faces up like the teachings of the prosperity gospel, the the popularity gospel, the political gospel, be Democrat or Republican, because surely Jesus was one of those. The social gospels of the day, critical race theory and harmful gender ideologies and progressive churches who all in the name of love seek to derive people straight to hell because it's better to work on penance than be a repentant people. These things ultimately rely on themselves and they find sufficiency in other things and people rather than Christ. Friends, Brothers, sisters, do not be deluded. False teachings are in abundance. Be rooted in Christ and his word. These are subtle. These things are subtle. And and people may 
distract you with the realities of these passing philosophies that, oh no, this is what this actually means. Go back to the word of God and read it truly because it is subtle how these things happen, but the differences and the subtleties matter because they will render our faith ineffective. And so church, nature of Paul's warning to the Colossians is not just a tiny caution. It's life and death, and that is not hyperbole. It is real. It's a strong imperative to flee from philosophies that are empty and filled with deceit. The phrase, see to it, here in verse 8, alerts us to the real danger that is at hand with these serious consequences. And he continues with that no one takes you captive. And it speaks to the enticing nature of the false teachings of their day and to ours. False teachings are sweet. False teachers are sweeter. They will tickle your ears and they will say exactly what you want them to say. I know far too many, far too many friends of mine who have bought into these other gospels which have diluted their faith. And let me tell you, every single one of them have left the faith. Started out simple enough. More friends than I have fingers. Now here's what is so amazing with Paul's statement here though. Think about where Paul is. He's in prison. He's in prison. He's warning, his warning for the believers is strengthened by the irony of the false teachers who claim to offer freedom, but what they offer is actually a peddling in slavery, a slavery to sin and to the law, right? This is what the false teachers are teaching, and we'll get to it shortly, that adhere to these religious practices. Jesus probably wasn't fully deity, right? He, he, that, was, that wasn't the real Jesus. There's, there's, the, the real Jesus is going to come. No, these, these things are... Paul's rooting them. No, this is reality. And so these teachers are teaching these things. You got to work. You got to make penance. You got to do the things in the Jewish culture. You know, we're still under the law. We have these things. Jesus didn't fulfill that. No. So they, they peddle in slavery. But what's ironic is that Paul, being imprisoned, shackled in chains, peddles in freedom. The gospel of Jesus. Oh, it's, I mean, it's glorious. And it just drives his point even more. He was like, I have nothing to gain from, from telling you this. I, in fact, I, have, I already have everything. I find Christ sufficient. So here's my letter to you, that if you believe this same message as you were once taught, that you will have freedom in Christ. You have freedom You see, other puzzle pieces have crept in. They started to believe and grab onto the false teachings because what if Christ wasn't enough? What if he wasn't enough for salvation and to give them what they needed? What if they needed more? So they began to go to other philosophies and religions that were according to human tradition. And we read about about these kind of practices below. And like I said, I'm staying up to verse 15 for all of our benefit. I'm staying in verse to verse 15. But we can read about this in 16 on in the rest end of the chapter. 
I don't have time to go through all of it in detail, but luckily a few weeks ago, if you were here, Dr. Todd Williams, the president of Cairn University, came and preached, and he preached that exact section. So my encouragement to you is if you want to read more about that or you want to listen to that again, go listen to that sermon that we had a few weeks ago that he did on Colossians chapter 2. But the point that Paul is making here for us is do you not understand that Christ is sufficient for salvation? And not just salvation, for all your wants. All things are met in Jesus Christ our Lord. Anything else that you hear, to adhere to other requirements of the law, to find desires somewhere else is futile. It's futile. It won't last. Christ is all that the believer needs. And if you trust in Christ, he will meet all of your needs and then some. These false teachings distort and deny the foundational truth of the gospel that Christ is God in the flesh. And he has come to save you completely. Church, our faith in Christ must be exclusive and cannot be enhanced. It cannot be enhanced by addition through good works or religious practices, which is syncretism, or by subtraction through abstaining from sin by, de- de- by depriving ourselves from privileges, which is aestheticism. These things deny Christ is sufficient. And in contrast to the false teachings, Paul lays out for us a greater reality found in verses 9 to 10, which is faithful teaching. Faithful teaching. It edifies us and it exalts Jesus And Paul characterizes faithful teaching as that which edifies us. What a comparison. I mean, false teaching brings emptiness, but Christ both is divinely full. And he brings divine fullness. And the idea of fullness given here excludes room for any other competing doctrines or practices. He is complete. You bring nothing No one else can bring anything. He is fullness itself. Deity incarnate. Paul's point here is to elevate the comprehensive nature of Christ's essence as the entire embodiment of God. This reminds us of Paul's earlier statement in chapter 1 verse 19 where he says God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him. All of this affirms faithful teaching about Christ, specifically that Christ is real and that he is actually the presence of God himself in bodily form. This is the incarnation. This is what we eagerly wait for as we celebrate Christmas, which is the best time of the year. There's a whole song about it. I mean, it's glorious. It's the only time of the year where unbelievers are singing the glories of the gospel in their cars. What other time of year is more wonderful? The reality that Jesus is fully man and fully God, and that matters to our faith, that matters to faithful teaching, that matters to us to find sufficiency in Christ, because if he was only God, he could not sympathize with us as our high priest. And if he was only man, he could not save us from our sins. He needed to be fully both. It matters so that we can walk and abound in thanksgiving 
With both clarity and certainty, Paul drives home the doctrine of Jesus as God. This is everything for the believer. Everything. That God is fully divine speaks to his ability to save us from our sins. That we have a glorious substitution found in Christ. And this matters because it is through Christ's physical death and bodily resurrection that he offers salvation once for all. And the possibility of both a reconciled and resurrected life. Brothers and sisters, that we, that we would find this to be everything. Do not get bored with Christ and his grace. He has come to give life and it abundantly. He is sufficient for all that you could ever need because he is preeminent. Do not be fooled by the empty teaching, but be fueled, by the, be fueled and filled by this book in Christ. You may say, well, I feel like I'm lacking some things, Jared. And I want to point us to this reality that his fullness of deity now resides in us. This is a glorious reality in verse 10. And you have been filled in him, pointing back once again in us being built up, alluding to, to us being the new tabernacle and temple that God was pleased to dwell in. In the Old Testament, we read of this this tabernacle and this dwelling place. And here is what is so amazing about this. Christ embodies the fullness of deity, meaning he lacks nothing at all. And now that same person resides in us, filling us, and we lack nothing. Yes, Delaney, I know. It's great. She's heard this already. We lack nothing. All of our wants and desires are met in Christ. You don't need to add to his work. You don't need anything else in this life to make you feel whole. Christ is sufficient. You, know, you don't need the identity of, pe- of other people's approval. It is Christ alone. You can experience true fulfillment in him. And apart from Christ, there's no genuine satisfaction. But through his fullness, we are made complete. It is because of Christ and his fullness and him dwelling within us that we can fulfill our created purposes, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then sharing the truth of that reality with anyone who would hear it. We can experience life in its fullest expression. Friends, to walk and abound in thanksgiving means that we find Christ sufficient. Christ as sufficient. And lastly, identity and more quickly, identity. Walking and abounding in thanksgiving means that we deepen our intimacy with Christ. We find Christ sufficient and, and we find his identity to be everything as well. And friends, this is my favorite part of this whole section. This is the gospel. That we would embody this message today would be everything for you and me. If Christ is sufficient, we will not look anywhere else to find out whom we are and whom we belong to. The answer to the question, what should, what should be the, the response out of how do we walk and abound in thanksgiving? And then the question, what should we be thankful for? It bursts. It bursts from the last five verses here and it works to fix our eyes on Christ. 
This section of chapter 2 is the hinge argument in Paul's letter to the Colossians because it fights the dangers of the scattered puzzle and that of boredom. It encourages us to walk and abound in thanksgiving based upon the truths of Christ's identity and ours as well. And first, right here, we read that he circumcised our hearts. That he circumcised our hearts. You look at verse 11. Because of Christ's fullness and our fullness in him, Paul expounds on that reality by referencing the Jewish custom of circumcision. This is what the covenant sign of God's people was before the new covenant. And as such, circumcision was the defining physical distinctive that set people that set the people of Israel apart from all other nations, as we read in Genesis 17. It showed the covenant relationship between God and his people, but it also showed the means by which the covenant would be confirmed. It would be ratified and fulfilled in the promised Messiah through the seed of Abraham found in Genesis 12. We see this further in Moses' realization of the spiritual nature of circumcision and the circumcision of the heart that it represented, where we read in Deuteronomy 30, Verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and your hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. This is the same thing Paul is doing for us in in Colossians, emphasizing the spiritual reality of circumcision as well as the spiritual nature of the seed promise and the covenant fullness found in Christ Jesus. This is why he says, as those who were also circumcised in him with a circumcision made without hands. Made without hands. This was fighting against the false teachings that taught in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Christ is for us. Uh, What I believe Paul's further point for us in, in using this covenantal metaphor is to put on display, get this, the substitutionary death of Jesus, and this is what he says, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul's term here, the body of flesh, points back to the reference of Christ's physical body in chapter one of Colossians verse 22. This would hold firm here because it falls in line with Paul's larger argument about Christ's embodiment as deity, that he is both fully God and fully man. In this sense, Christ's death for us is understood as his, as his circumcision that permanently confirms God's covenant with his people for all time. This is our identity, that Christ has come to die for us. Second, he has conquered over death. And look at verses 12 to 13. What is this substitutionary death? Paul answers this for us, our identity is further confirmed through his sacrifice and our participation in it by faith. And Paul explains that through Christ's substitutionary atonement and his bodily resurrection, he has conquered death itself, defeating the ultimate penalty of sin and giving us new life. This is our identity. If you know Christ today, because you were circumcised, you were buried, and you were also raised with him, And if you're here this morning and you either don't know if you're saved or you've never accepted Christ, he can be yours through faith by the working of God now. Now, 
You see, we have two problems before Jesus. You were dead and you needed life and you were guilty and you needed forgiveness. But thanks be to God that he sent his son. He sent his son Jesus and he came to live the perfect life that we could not die our death and raise again to put death to death. Death in its grave. Oh, that this is the glorious reality for us all this morning. What an incentive. And what more incentive would you actually need to walk and abound in thanksgiving? Further, the question I think we must ask ourselves, like Steve placed before us last week, is if we're not thankful, if we are begrudging, and we have grown bored with God's grace, it might be a good question to ask yourself, do you understand the message? The message that Christ has conquered death. Friends, This shows our identity as more than conquerors. Third, he canceled our debt. Look at verse 13 to 14. Our identity in Christ is further defined by his forgiveness. And I promise this is my last page. it's, it's, It's defined by his forgiveness. Paul is bridging the gap between the physical work of Jesus and the atonement. And it provides to us, he says, here... You were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. There's nothing you could do. You can't bring anything. You were dead. Paul points us back to the ideas of circumcision and baptism to once again tie us to Christ's work. If we believe in him by faith, repent and believe. This is the atonement, friends. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament foreshadows Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for us. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Through his blood, Christ atones for our sin, securing forgiveness through God's mercy and grace. This forgiveness is total. And as we see in the phrase, all our our trespasses, it is complete. This forgiveness is not only forensic in nature, but it's also a financial one. We see in verse 14 where he says, by canceling the record of debt. If we know Christ, our debt is erased. It does not exist. It is moot. He accomplished much for us. How does he do that? By nailing it to the cross. What grace. More extraordinary than the Grand Canyon and more beautiful than the Northern Lights. Lastly, verse 15. He condemns the enemy and confirms our victory. Paul is reminding us of the Christ hymn once again in chapter 1, where we read that Jesus is supreme over all authority and ruler because he is sovereign. He is over and above all things. He is preeminent. And he now asserts this reality by disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame. Through Christ stripping off his body of flesh, he victoriously strips the opposing evil forces of their power and defeats the cosmic evils of the day and of the world have no power. We are victorious through Christ and the fate of the enemies of God are sealed. Friends, God wins. He has won. He is winning. You may be discouraged by the current events of the day, but guess what? Stop watching the news. It's already accomplished. It's done. I mean, amen? 
It is, it is finished. He, and when he said that on the cross, it wasn't a hyperbole. It was true. Death has no sting. Sin is defeated. The cosmic evils of the world still fall in line with the will of God. There is nothing out of his control. And he brings it to a glorious end that sees him sitting on a throne. <laughs> that is what Paul's getting at. We're victorious. We're victorious through him. And not only defeating them, but shaming them through the death and life and resurrection of Christ. Jesus put on display publicly his victory and the defeat of his enemies. The full phrase, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It carries a cultural connotation to it as well. In the ancient world, this victorious term Paul uses would describe the triumphal procession of a Roman general who would lead a parade of powerless captives behind him because he has conquered over them and their defeat and humiliation was made public and it declared his authority. Can you see that? This term does not just do this for us, but it confirmed our victory. We as Christians can walk in confidence that whatever life throws our way, be it hardships or heartaches or trials or temptations, be whatever it is, church, our identity is in Christ because he has disarmed the enemy and we who are in him by faith are able to overcome the world. We can walk and abound in thanksgiving because we have much to be thankful for. Church, we will be faced with temptations to drift away from foundational truths of the gospel. We will have puzzle pieces that we need to find and reevaluate if they are actually the right puzzle pieces. Let us cling to the truth of Christ as described for us here in Colossians 2, we must deepen our intimacy with Christ. And likewise, our world will entice us with all its vain rewards and its empty promises and its spiritual counterfeits as to convince us that we can be satisfied with them instead of Jesus. We must find him sufficient. And ultimately, we must walk with Christ to overcome temptation, to not find our identity in what we know and what we can do or what we have, but instead we find our identity comes from who we know, what he has done, and all that he offers. Church, this is the challenge before us. It's the challenge before us today, and it was a challenge for the Colossians. Will we walk and abound in thanksgiving? How? Intimacy, sufficiency, and identity. Let's pray.